Welcome back, everybody, to the second session of today. This session will be about uh, the politics of division, Marxism versus identity politics. Uh, as you know, in the current period, identity politics uh, are uh, particularly in vogue. And so it is important uh, to discuss the origins of these uh, ideas and the position of the Marxism on it. The lead-off will be given by Ilva Wimberg, which is a leading activist of uh, Revolution, that is the Swedish section of the IMT. Ilva will speak uh, for about 90 minutes, then we will have a break until uh, 7.30 British time, then we'll have some interventions, and finally uh, the sum-up to finish the session at 9 British time. As you can see, we are having some pauses while we are speaking. That is to give time for the translations. If you need the translation, you can find uh, all the available languages. They are uh, 12 uh, on the left of the screen. As you, as you can find uh, the whole program of our uh, Marxist University, if you select the star. Now, just before uh, leaving the, uh, to, to Ilva, an announcement, uh, you probably already heard it uh, in the previous session. It is about comrade uh, uh, Amin from the Pakistani se section of the IMT, who on um, uh, July the 14th was abduct abducted by, from his home by the Rangers. That is a paramilitary group in Pakistan. And in many cases, victims of the rangers have been tortured and many have lost their lives. So we appeal to all those watching to hold protests against these crimes of the Pakistani state. You can write letters and emails to Pakistani embassies in different countries in a personal capacity or on behalf of your organizations. A video and an article have been published on the Marxist.com website. And this can be posted on social media with the hashtag Release Amin and Stop State Abductions in Pakistan. Okay, thank you for your attention. Now I'll leave uh, to Ilva to lead off this uh, session. Okay, I'm good to go? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alessio. Well, um, comrades, take a look at the world around you. Police violence against black people in the U.S., border controls and shots fired against refugees, the murdering of women, femicides in Mexico. This is the system we live in, a world where people face harassment, violence, being seen as a second-class citizen because of your gender, sexuality, the color of your skin, your ethnicity or your religion. Despite all that talk about gender equality from the leaders of the world, the situation for women and girls is not getting better, but worse. In the world of the rich and the famous, it's hailed as a great step forward when a woman becomes prime minister or a Hollywood celebrity gives a speech on gender equality when winning an Oscar. In the real world, the oppression women face condemn a majority of them to a life of poverty and discrimination. 60% of the world's chronically hungry 
are women and girls. And women make up more than two-thirds of the world's 796 million illiterate people. In the real world, 50,000 women across the world are killed by a member of their own family every year. So how do we struggle against oppression? In this talk, I'll be discussing two opposing views, the views of Marxism and the views of identity politics. Now, for Marxists, the struggle against oppression is connected to the struggle against capitalism because all oppressions are rooted in class society. Oppression under capitalism is a mechanism used in order to split the working class and the poor, fermenting sexism, racism, homophobia, and other reactionary ideas. Capitalists and politicians pit different sectors of the masses against each other so that workers see each other as the enemy instead of the capitalists and the capitalist system itself. And we see this today, how reactionary politicians like Trump, Bolsonaro, and Boris Johnson try to rally a part of the most politically backward sectors of the masses against trans people, women's right to abortion, immigrants, to keep workers from uniting, to keep them from struggling against capitalism. Oppression is also very profitable for the capitalists. Immigrants and other parts of the working class are paid less, and that puts a pressure on the other more well-paid parts of the working class to lower their wages and accept reduced working conditions in order to not be replaced. By lowering wages for one sector of the working class, the capitalists can therefore lower the wages for all workers. Now, the way to fight oppression, we say, is through class unity. The stronger the unity of the working class is, then the harder it is to use oppression to divide the workers. And the more support a movement against oppression has among the broader layers of the working class, and the more the working class takes an active role in leading that struggle, and the more that that movement threatens the very system, the more gains can be won. This is because of the working class position in capitalist production. Capitalism is based on the exploitation of the workers for profit. And this means that the working class can organize and attack capitalists where it hurts. Strikes that stop production means capitalists lose profits. And that gives the working class a power that other groups in society does not have. It's not an accident, for example, that the biggest gains made for women in Sweden, where I'm from, which is the same in many other countries, were a product of the class struggle. For example, the right to vote, women's right to vote, uh, was won in Sweden. In the revolutionary period of 1917 and 1918, and that forced the Swedish ruling class to make concessions since they were scared that the revolution would overthrow the entire capitalist system as it had done in Russia. Now, the struggle against oppression is part of the struggle against capitalism because the socialist revolution cannot succeed unless workers unite. It is essential, for example, that workers understand that it is the capitalist system that is to blame for unemployment and cuts and not immigrants as politicians want workers to believe. 
It is essential that they understand the need to struggle together against oppression if they want to fight for their own liberation. And it is precisely in periods of great class struggles and more so in revolutions, when workers understand that they have much more to gain by uniting and that the capitalists are trying to use oppression to pit them against each other, is then they learn who the real enemy is. It's in a revolution when workers on a mass scale begins to question all that society has tried to teach them. And this we've seen time and time again in revolutions. Women who participated in the 2011 revolution in Egypt said that during the high point of the revolution, women could be outside all night in the Tahrir Square of Cairo without being harassed. As one woman said who participated, she said, no one sees you as a woman here. No one sees you as a man. We're all united in our desire for democracy and freedom. Also, the majority of the working class of the world are women or part of some other oppressed group that is on top of the exploitation and oppression that all workers face as workers. So the idea that a socialist revolution would not also mean a struggle against oppression is quite ludicrous. Because when workers move to change society, they put forward all their issues, all their troubles, and struggle for a total liberation from all exploitation and oppression. So every period of great class struggles and revolutions also awakens the struggle against oppression. And we've seen this during the last decade with Black Lives Matter in the US, the mass movement that we saw this year against Modi's citizenship law, which was aimed against Muslims in, in India, the 5.3 million that came out during the women's strike uh, in Spain in 2018. We've seen, ma we've seen massive movements against oppression around the world in recent times because we're living in a period of a deep crisis of capitalism that has provoked class struggle and revolutions. Now, feminists often claim that Marxists don't care to struggle against oppression, nor for any reforms that would improve the lives of oppressed workers. They say we're only waiting for the revolution. But on the contrary, it's only in the day-to-day -day struggle uh, for improved living conditions and against injustice and counter-reforms. Yeah, sorry, lost the translation. Sorry, I'm back. Um, so, it's, so it's only in the struggle against injustice counter and counter-reforms that workers can learn how to struggle against capitalism. But what we do explain is that you simply cannot reform away oppression and that there can be no collaboration with the ruling class in the struggle against oppression. The capitalists, no matter if they're men or women, black or white, gay or straight, profit from oppression as capitalists and any attempts to collaborate with the ruling class or their political representatives will always end up with them derailing the movement or trying to derail the movement anyway, into something that does not threaten the capitalist system or the profits of the capitalists. So as Marxists, we have a clear understanding of how to struggle against oppression and how we can abolish it. But the forces of Marxism are still a minority, too small to be able to offer our advice on how to struggle to the broader masses and to lead mass movements. 
Most who seek ways to fight oppression encounter the ideas of identity politics, such as intersectionality, queer theory, and different strands of feminism like radical feminism. Now, identity politics is all based on the idea that all struggle against oppression has to be led by those directly suffering under that specific oppression. It's women who must lead the fight against patriarchy. It's trans people who must lead the fight against transphobia. It's black and people of color who must lead the fight against racism. For them, the struggle against oppression are all separate struggles. And they understand oppression as a structure more or less separated from capitalism. They say that women's oppression is based on patriarchy, a structure of men's domination over women that does not completely rely on the capitalist system. Racism is due to white privilege that is not based on the capitalist system. But what is white privilege? What is patriarchy? The dominant trend within identity politics is to understand oppression as a result of a series of unfortunate ideas or norms, as they say. The struggle against oppression for them is therefore first and foremost a struggle to convince people and society to stop having these oppressive ideas and behaviors. Now, this is what Marxists call idealism, which in philosophical terms means that you view society, the way that the world operates, as a consequence of the ideas, morals, or norms people have. Marxism holds the opposite view. As materialists, we understand that the ideas people have, the ideas, the dominant ideas of society, is shaped by how society is built. The task, therefore, is to change society. For example, we explain that the ideas of racism arose to justify slavery and colonialism and exists today to justify imperialist exploitation and racist discrimination. Women's oppression, we explain, arose alongside class society, where women went from being equal and well-respected within the old egalitarian hunting and gathering societies to being subordinated to men within the family. It was the rise of private property in men's primary field of work in agriculture, which led to the relegation of the position of women in society. And in order to maintain their private property and pass it on to their heirs, men forced monogamy upon women so that they would know that their children was really their children. And thus men came to dominate women who were now confined to the home. And it was on this basis that the control of women and their sexuality in the family arose. Under capitalism, many women have gained a greater economic independence from men by being drawn into production, becoming part of the working class and making a wage for herself. But capitalism is still dependent on the family and the domestic labor of women in the household in order for new workers to be brought up for the capitalists to exploit. Women are paid less, work more part-time, and are therefore still economically dependent on men. And as long as that economic inequality uh, exists, as long as society rests on the family, then men will have power over women. And with that also follows violence, harassment, and sexist stereotypes. These ideas reflect the real world we live in. But it is the ruling class 
that spreads prejudice and hatred against oppressed minorities, which workers are not immune to through the media, uh, through the state, throughout society. And oppressions are concrete things that can't simply be educated away. An American company that exploits the natural resources and cheap labor of a poor country does not stop being exploitation and a mechanism which upholds the racist world order if that company gets a black CEO or calls itself anti-racist or whatever. You cannot simply convince the big monopolies of the world to stop exploiting the poor countries. You have to overthrow the imperialist system we live in. It's not a matter of prejudice, but of the way society is built. So we say we have to struggle for a society, a socialist society, where oppression will not be upheld by the system. Only by getting rid of the material basis uh, for oppression can we lay the basis for prejudice, harassment and violence to gradually disappear. But identity politics, on the other hand, says that those who are to blame for the existence of oppression are those who are not oppressed in the same way. Men are responsible for women's oppression and benefit from it. White people are responsible for racism and benefit from it. Heterosexual are to blame for homophobia and so on. As the intersectional academic Frances Kendall put it, she said, any of us who has race privilege, which all white people do, and therefore the power to put our prejudices into law, is racist by definition because we benefit from a racist system. Feminist Heidi Hartman says the same on women's oppression in her text, The Unhappy Marriage of Marxism and Feminism from 1979, where she says that men have a material interest in women's continued oppression. Fight against oppression is therefore for them uh, a struggle of women against men, black and people of color against white, trans against so-called cis people, that is, non-trans. Those who do not suffer from the same oppression are privileged, and as they say, must uh, check their privileges, which means question your privileges, and they can only be supporters or allies to those who must lead the struggle. And that means that the majority of those who are the oppressors are workers and poor around the world, And the struggle is one of worker against worker, oppressed against oppressed. Now, the way that identity politics puts the blame on uh, the so-called privileged workers actually mirrors the mechanisms of maintaining oppression by capitalism. Because capitalists want white workers to think they benefit from racism. They want men to think they benefit from women's oppression. They want workers to be pitted against each other. And identity politics reinforces this, saying the same thing. Now, for example, some feminists in Sweden have claimed that the more well-paid male workers in in male-dominated sectors should not go on strike because they're already so well-paid and privileged. But it's not women workers in the public sector with lower wages that would benefit from these workers not going on strike and demanding more in wages. It's the capitalists that these workers work for. And it's not the male workers that want to keep down the wages of women workers in the public sector. It is the politicians that are eager to defend capitalist profits by spending less on welfare 
that do not want to increase the wages of nurses, care workers and others. The day-to-day advantages that some workers get from not being uh, doubly oppressed is nothing compared to what they would gain if they united and struggled for more. So for us, it's not a struggle between different allied groups for their own interests, but a common struggle for common interests. Now, identity politics started to get prominence towards the end of the 80s and during the 90s. Now, this was a period of an ebb in the class struggle, the era of Reagan and Thatcher, the fall of the Soviet Union and the supposed final defeat of communism. The academics who had witnessed the great movements of the 60s and 70s drew the conclusion of the impossibility of the workers defeating capitalism. While socialism in their minds seemed to be no way forward, capitalism also did not seem to offer a brighter future for humanity. They drew the most pessimistic conclusions and became advocates of different variants of postmodernism, which is the philosophical roots of identity politics. Those still sometimes using Marxist phraseology, these ideas were used to challenge and wipe out support for Marxism in academia, at the great satisfaction of the bourgeoisie. And from academia, it spread into the left and the labor movement at a time when the labor movement was emptied of workers. As a result from the ebb in the class struggle and the rightward shift of the labor movement, middle-class careerists took the workers' place and eagerly embraced these so-called new ideas. If one looks closer at the ideas of identity politics, one can find the ideas of postmodernism all over it. The rejection of an ability to understand the objective world we live in. The rejection of a so-called grand change of the world. Instead of the revolution, the small groups or the individual struggle against power. The idea that only I can understand my oppression, my reality, and no one else's. As the prominent intersectional feminist Patricia Hill Collins said, she said, uh, no one group has a clear angle of vision. No one group possesses the theory or methodology that allows it to discover the absolute truth. Now, Marxism, or rather what was thought to be Marxism, had already been challenged as a tool of analyzing oppression by the feminists in the 70s. But the Marxism that many left-wingers came into contact with in in this period was not Marxism, but Stalinism. Mm. There was also a tendency in the reformist labor movement to regard the issues of more oppressed workers as less important, basing themselves on the most well-paid workers with the most uh, illusions in reformism. Now, the inability of the labor movement to take a lead in the struggle against oppression and the existence of Stalinism that claimed that they had achieved communism in the Soviet Union despite not having gotten rid of women's oppression, the state, inequality, led to some thinking that Marxism and the labor movement was not the answer in the struggle against oppression. Now, this gave an impulse to separatist organizations and a search for new ideas like radical feminism. Mm. Now, one example of how the feminists in the 70s viewed Marxism was a a feminist uh, lesbian uh, group in the U.S. called Combahee River Collective that in 1977 released a statement 
where they said that they agreed with Marxist theory when analyzing economic relationships, but that Marxism could not explain the oppression of black women. They said, this focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. And in the end of their statement, they quote Robin Morgan, who said, I haven't the faintest notion of what possible revolutionary role that white heterosexual men could fulfill, since they are the very embodiment of reactionary vested interest power. Now, ironically enough, all these feminists actually borrowed extensively their ideas from Marxism, or rather what they thought was Marxism. But just like the other postmodernists, they took those ideas and turned them into their opposite. And the consequence of those ideas is what we see in the movement today. Now, some feminists think that because they focus so much on women's oppression, that means that they are the ones who take the struggle against women's oppression most seriously. But if one has an incorrect idea or an incorrect understanding, then that will lead to a counterproductive strategy. The idealism of identity politics leaves it open to be fooled by the system. If the idea is that we just have to check our privileges, if we just have to struggle against the ideas of sexism and racism, then one can easily be fooled into thinking that real progress has been made simply because a leading politician or even capitalist says that they're feminist or anti-racist. Just like politicians can swear that they take the climate crisis very seriously and then do nothing, politicians can say that they're for gender equality whilst at the same time attacking women's working and living conditions. Companies can initiate small things, like all those companies that claim to support Black Lives Matter, where they can appear to be with the movement, support the movement, all the while exploiting their workers in the same manner as before, profiting from oppression. And if the idea is that women has to be represented by other women, that we need more female leaders, then one can easily be fooled into supporting leaders from an oppressed group, being elected as a party leader or leader of a government, no matter what politics they actually stand for or what class interests they represent. It leaves the door open for class collaboration. In Sweden, one party after another have become feminist since the 90s, precisely in the period where the gains made in the post-war period were beginning to be rolled back through cuts in privatization. Ebba Bush-Tor, Uh, the leader of the Swedish Christian Democratic Party. She calls herself a feminist, while she's a conservative who would like to curtail the right to abortion. The Liberal Party of Sweden has a black female leader, and she represents a shift to a more open racist profile for that party, because she wants to bring the party closer to the racist Sweden Democrats. The social democracy that is now in government has claimed that it carries out um, feminist uh, foreign policies, which apparently means selling weapons to Saudi Arabia that has been used on the war on Yemen. 
all these politicians, all these party leaders, they use um, labels and their identities as a way to distract from the real policies they carry out. Feminism has become a mass industry in Sweden, where a myriad of academics can thank feminism for their career. They claim that they're doing an important work against uh, women's oppression through something in, we call in Sweden gender pedagogy in schools and at workplaces, where they challenge gender roles. All these people can lead a comfortable life as part of the establishment, patting themselves on the back for their commitment against oppression. All the while, the same establishment has torn apart the welfare state once built up during these past 30 years. What has this official feminism given working women in Sweden? A lie. That's what they're given. And the same can be said of the NGOs in the poorer countries. They've become an industry that allows a small layer of middle-class people to lead a comfortable life whilst all they offer for the masses of poor women is a lot of empty talk and charity. Identity politics is is not, as those who advocate it would claim, a means to make sure that the struggle against oppression is made a top priority of the political leaders. It's a facade these leaders use to cover, in the best case, a lack of action, in the worst case, attacks and austerity. And this is true both for the capitalists the right-wing parties, and the labor movement. Identity politics is also used as a way to stifle left-wing and revolutionary elements within the labor movement by putting forward candidates from an oppressed group as an alternative to left-wingers in the movement, or by claiming that men take up too much time of the debate or that something they say is sexist or racist, In the British Labour Party, the right wing used false claims of anti-Semitism to attack the left wing. And as identity politics claims that only those suffering under an oppression can define what that oppression is, you cannot question their claims of sexism or racism. And left wing elements in the labour movement often stand very vulnerable against this sort of attack because they're so eager to prove that they're against oppression, that they're the best feminists, the best intersectional uh, feminists. So in the Labour Party, many left-wingers simply accepted those claims without question. And we see the same phenomena in protest movements. During the um, Black Lives Matter movement in uh, Sweden this summer, the solidarity demonstrations, A young woman, outraged by the police violence and inspired by the movement in the US, decided to spontaneously organize a demonstration in Gothenburg through Facebook. And this was the first political thing that she had ever done. But since she was of Middle Eastern origin and not black, she was immediately bombarded with harassment that you cannot organize this, you should hand it over to black people, which she did. And at the end, she was so demoralized by the treatment that, as far as we know, she didn't even turn up to the demo. This is just one example, but there are many similar or exactly the same examples as this one. Now, Marxists meet those we disagree with through political discussion and debate. We understand that we cannot simply forbid prejudice and pretend that it will all go away if we just shout at or insult anyone that we disagree with. 
The methods of just shutting down a political proponent, something we usually reserve for fascists or trolls who just want to disrupt political activities. But in the identity political movement, these are methods that are considered to be fair game to be used against pretty much anyone that disagrees with them by declaring a boycott against them, bombarding them with hateful comments, demanding that they be removed from their job or position. And this creates a mood of fear and serves to stifle the debate and divide the movement. We denounce all these methods and ideas. We say it should always be the policies that decide what candidate to support, not their gender, sexuality or color of their skin. Because experiences of oppression is not enough to know how to fight it and does not give one the right to claim leadership of any movement. One has to know where oppression comes from, why it exists today, to understand how to get rid of it and what know what methods and which demands to put forward in the struggle. That is, one has to study history and analyze society. The knowledge in how to fight women's oppression is not something you're born with simply because you're born a woman. You have to learn it. As Marxists, we're not fighting for a minority from an oppressed group to have a career within the capitalist state. We don't fight for the oppressed to be represented by a few individuals but fight for a communist society with no state where everyone runs society. What we need is not to be equally represented by the capitalists that exploit us or the politicians that uphold their system. What we need is to destroy the system through its revolutionary overthrow. And what we need is not a myriad of different organizations for different oppressed groups, all carrying out their separate struggles but a united mass movement of all oppressed under the leadership of a revolutionary labor movement. And though the majority that call themselves feminists and many who favor intersectionality only mean that they want to fight oppression, we do not call ourselves feminists or intersectional Marxists. Precisely because these ideas, no matter in what form you find them in, cannot explain oppression or how to fight it effectively. Now, because the leaders of feminism and intersectionality do not understand the need to end capitalism, to end oppression, they end up adapting to the capitalist system. Not only that, they're also, in general, reformists or even liberals. Just look at the left party of Sweden. That party likes to view itself as the most feminist party in Sweden. They once campaigned for 200,000 new jobs in the public sector and a six-hour working day. Now, these are reforms that would have greatly improved the lives of working-class women. These demands are nowhere to be seen today. The leadership does not push these demands anymore because the party leadership is so eager to collaborate with the Social Democrats, so they've dropped all the more radical demands to accommodate to them. It's the same with all the other examples as I, as I gave. The left party has become feminists precisely in the same period as they've moved to the right. So our problem with those leading figures of feminism and intersectionality is not that they take the struggle against oppression too seriously. It's the opposite. We say you don't do enough in the struggle against oppression. You're afraid of challenging the system. You don't believe that the workers can overthrow the capitalist system and run a socialist society. 
you've become convinced that only the capitalists and the politicians can run society. They end up being the same way as all other politicians and capitalists who say, don't take to the streets, leave all your problems in our hands, and sooner or later, things will get better. We say, take to the streets, struggle now against all the ills in society, struggle now for your full and complete liberation, struggle now for a world revolution to destroy this barbaric system, to destroy it once and for all, to end all exploitation, injustice, and with it, all forms of oppression. Thank you very much, Ilva, for this very good lead-off. Uh, Ilva m- mentioned uh, postmodernism as a philosophical basis for these ideas. Yesterday we had a session on uh, this argument. You can watch it, re-watch it uh, by selecting it uh, from the program of uh, this uh, Master's University. Now we are having a 27 minutes break and start uh, again at 7.30 British time. The first speaker will be Sam Ashton. Okay, so see you all then. Welcome back to this uh, session on Marxism versus uh, identity politics. Uh, The first speaker will be Sam Ashton from the British section of the IMT. will be followed by Marie Frederiksen from the Danish section. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Sam from London. Soy Sam de Londres. Uh, And I bring you revolutionary greetings from Socialist Appeal, the British section of the IMT. I wanted to build on uh, Ilva's excellent lead-off by talking more about the central role of class in fighting oppression. As Marxists, we believe the main contradiction in society is the antagonism between wage labour and capital. But we don't believe the exploitation of the working class is any more severe than the pain felt by the myriad of groups oppressed under capitalism. By placing the primacy on class, we're not trying to minimize or dismiss people's oppression. We merely understand that the conditions of wage labor under capitalism make possible the formation of class consciousness. And this consciousness can take hold of the broad mass of the working class, which can utilize its economic power to bring about revolutionary change. The same is not true for oppressed groups. That's why class is so important. Because the working class holds the power in its hand to smash capitalism. And this will lay the basis for the destruction of all forms of oppression. This is in opposition to the ideas of identity politics. Which maintains only oppressed groups themselves can fight their oppression. 
que dice que solo los grupos oprimidos en sí mismos pueden, pueden luchar contra la propia opresión. We've seen throughout history attempts to unite oppressed groups in struggle inevitably break down on class lines. Hemos visto a, durante la historia desde unir a diferentes grupos oprimidos en la lucha eh, inevitablemente rompiéndose en líneas de clase. This is because bourgeois and petty bourgeois members of oppressed groups only ever want to take the struggle so far. Y esto es así porque elementos burgueses y pequeños burgueses de estos grupos oprimidos solo quieren llevar la lucha hasta unos ciertos límites. They only want to acquire the same privileges and positions as their peers from non-oppressed groups. Realmente lo que quieren es conseguir los mismos privilegios que sus colegas de grupos no oprimidos. Once they've achieved sufficient form, they're happy, reform, they're happy to abandon the struggle. Una vez han conseguido reformas suficientes, están más que contentos de abandonar la lucha. An example of this is the British suffragette movement. Un ejemplo de esto es la lucha de las suffragettes en el británico. The suffragettes were a group of women who fought for the right to vote for women in the early 20th century. Este movimiento de mujeres que lucharon para el derecho a la votación de la mujer en el siglo XX. Emmeline Pankhurst was the main leader of this movement. But her main objective was not to gain universal suffrage. Instead, she fought for votes for women on the same basis as men. And at the time, this meant that only people with a certain level of wealth were allowed to vote. Lo que significaba que en ese momento solo un cierto porcentaje de, la, de las personas que tenían una cierta cantidad de dinero podía votar. So instead of fighting for women as a whole, the suffragettes were actually fighting just for the rights of wealthy women. Así que las suffragistas en vez de luchar para las mujeres en su conjunto, van para una sección. De... This, this contradiction was brutally exposed by the First World War. Esta contradicción fue expuesta de manera explosiva durante la Primera Guerra Mundial. Emmeline Pankhurst fully supported this reactionary imperialist slaughter. Emmeline Pankhurst dio apoyo a esta lucha encarnizada reaccionaria imperialista. She reached a rotten deal with the conservative government to suspend, suspend all the suffragettes' protests. Llegó a un acuerdo totalmente podido con el gobierno de los Tories para suspender todas las protestas de las suffragistas. She received funding from the government to mobilize the suffragettes to support the war. Y en cambio recibió dinero del gobierno para movilizar a los suffragistas para dar apoyo a la guerra. When more radical suffragettes protested at this betrayal, they were ruthlessly silenced. Cuando elementos más radicales de las suffragistas protestaron contra esta traición, fueron eh, radicalmente silenciadas. As the war drew on, women were uh, pulled into the war industries where they were ruthlessly exploited. Mientras la lucha continuaba, mientras la guerra continuaba, muchas mujeres fueron introducidas en la industria de la guerra, donde fueron explotadas terriblemente. But Emmeline urged them not to strike or protest, but instead to do their patriotic duty. Sin embargo, Emily les, eh, les animó a que no, no fueran a la huelga o protestaran y que hicieran su, su tarea patriótica. Emmeline also became a, pro, uh, a prominent opponent of the Bolsheviks. Emmeline también se convirtió en la famosa oponente de los bolcheviques. And in June 1917, she was sent on a mission to Russia. Y en, el, en junio de 1917 fue enviada con una misión a Rusia. This was organized and financed by the British 
conservative government. And our purpose was to support the provisional government and encourage Russia to stay in the war. The irony being that the successful Bolshevik revolution of 1917 gave women the right to vote in Russia for the first time. La ironía fue que la, la victoria de la revolución del 17 de octubre del 17 eh, consiguió voto universal para las mujeres. After the war, Emmeline was handsomely rewarded for her services to the ruling class and became a conservative MP. Una vez terminada la guerra, Emily fue recompensada enormemente por sus servicios a la clase dominante y se convirtió en una diputada de los conservadores. A section of the movement led by Sylvia Pankhurst, one of Emmeline's daughters, opposed this betrayal. Una sección de las sofistas, eh, dirigida por Sylvia Pankhurst, una de las hijas de Emmeline, se opuso a esta traición. Sylvia counterposed the tactic of individual militancy with mass struggle. She conducted work amongst working class women and believed the suffragettes should reach out to the labor movement as their main allies in the struggle. Trabajó en el movimiento obrero de las mujeres y creía que las suffragistas debían penetrar en el movimiento obrero y verlos como el principal aliado en su lucha. She continued to fight and organize opposing the war and went on to become a founding member of the British Communist Party. Durante la guerra continuó luchando y organizando contra la guerra y acabó siendo una de las fundadoras y miembros del partido comunitario. This is just one example of a pattern that has been repeated in struggles throughout history. Este tan solo es un ejemplo que se ve repetido numerosas veces en el curso de la historia. A certain layer only want to use the struggle to gain concessions that benefit themselves. Una capa solo lucha para conseguir concesiones que les benefician. Once they've achieved these privileges, they give up the struggle. Y una vez han conseguido sus objetivos, estos privilegios abandonan la lucha. Bourgeois and petty bourgeois oppressed people can afford to cushion themselves from their oppression in a way that working class oppressed people cannot. Burgueses y pequeños burgueses de grupos oprimidos pueden permitirse, eh, pueden permitirse este tipo de opresión de una forma que la clase obrera no es capaz eh, de, de poder. And some people from oppressed groups are actively members of the ruling class. Y hay algunas personas dentro de estos grupos oprimidos que son activos de la So despite their theoretical oppression, they have a stake in defending capitalism. Así que por el contrario de la opresión teórica, tienen, eh, tienen intereses en defender el capitalismo. This is why it's impossible for an oppressed group to successfully lead a struggle on their own. Y es por esto que es imposible que un grupo oprimido sea capaz de dirigir una lucha por sí solos. Because the movement inevitably breaks down on class lines. Porque el movimiento acaba rompiéndose en líneas de clase. But because they don't understand class, the proponents of identity politics fail to see that. Pero como no entienden la cuestión de clase, los que defienden las ideas de política de identidad no entienden este problema. Instead, the solution of identity politics is to seek to identify more privileged layers and exclude them from the movement. To create an even smaller subsection of oppressed groups. But all this achieves is to further divide a movement and diminish its power. Pero todo lo que consigue esto es dividir el movimiento 
ni reducir su poder. As, mar as Marxists, we're not interested in making the movement smaller. We want the opposite. Como marxistas no queremos eso, queremos todo lo contrario. We want the biggest and most powerful movement possible. Queremos más grande y más poderoso posible. And the biggest and most powerful group in the world is the working class. Y el grupo, y más, el grupo más poderoso en el mundo es precisamente la clase obrera. So we must seek to overcome all divisions in the working class. Así que debemos luchar para resolver o, o erradicar todas las diferencias en el seno de la clase obrera. To bring together all oppressed groups in a struggle against their common oppressor. Y así juntar a todas las capas diferentes en el movimiento contra la lucha contra el mismo opresor. And the real oppressor of a black worker isn't their white colleague. El, el opresor real de un trabajador negro no es su colega blanco. It's their boss and the capitalist system. Es su jefe y el sistema. So that's why the struggle against the repression must be a struggle against capitalism. Creo que la lucha contra la opresión debe ser una lucha vinculada contra el sistema capitalista. And the workers of the world are the only people who can wage that struggle successfully. Así que los trabajadores del mundo son los únicos que son capaces de luchar con este objetivo de manera victoriosa. Thank you, comrades. That's all I had to say. Muchas gracias, compañeros. Ahí lo dejo. Thank you, Sam, for your intervention. Next speaker is Marie Frederiksen from the Danish section of the IMT. Hello. Uh, revolutionary greetings from the Revolutionary Socialist, uh, the IMT in Denmark. Will be followed by Serena Capodicasa. <laughs> sorry, Mary. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now I'm on. Sorry. Uh, revolutionary greetings from the Revolutionary Socialists, the IMT in Denmark. Can you hear me, the translator? Sorry. Is, is the translator translating? Okay. I, I don't get it. Sorry. I don't understand why. Just a second. I hope it works now. Uh, yes, now it works. I'm sorry about that. If you if you look at identity politics, I, I can see why why it uh, it attracts a lot of radicalized youth who are indignant and who, who wants to fight oppression. Identity politics seems radical and even revolutionary, like wanting to do something serious about the problems. But the thing is, it isn't revolutionary, and it's not it's not a good tool in in fighting oppression. Quite the opposite, actually. It focuses on all these different kinds of oppressions uh, in the individuals. So it looks it looks at the, the individual struggles and not a collective struggle. But the struggle against oppression cannot be fought on an individual basis. If you look at identity politics, they have they look at all these different kinds of, of oppression, sex, sexism, racism uh, against women, and, and some of them even talk about classism as one kind of oppression. So it seems even almost like Marxism or, or like socialism, but but it isn't. It's it's very different. They see classism, uh, the oppression of the working class, as something idealist, something in the discourse, something in the way we speak about the working class, the proletariat. But but as Marxists, we see the oppression of the working class as based and as rooted in the economic structures of society. And that means that the oppression of the working class is different from the other kinds of oppression. The, the oppression of the working class cuts across all the other forms of oppression. You can have a capitalist who is black, you can have a worker who is black. You can have a woman who is a capitalist and you can have a woman who is a worker. But you don't have the workers being capitalist. And you can see how the companies now, it's become fashion. They all uh, take on the rainbow flag as, as promoting themselves. But you but you won't see them take on the red flag or the hammer and sickle. Um, 
And the thing is, the capitalist class is a tiny minority, as Ulva also explained. And, and they will use all means to divide the big majority, the working class, on, on all dividing lines that they can. So they use the media, the education system, the church, everything to, to spew out this poison of racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, and so on. Five minutes gone, Marie. So you can also find these kind of ideas in the working class, among the working class. But but for them, it's very different, uh, the, the racism or sexism that exists in the working class from the from the sexism that exists in the, in the capitalist class. For the capitalist class, it's a necessity. For the working class, it's an objective uh, disadvantage. It weakens them. It's against their objective interests. And that's why we see in struggle, as Ulvan mentioned, in Egypt or in strikes and so on, that all these dividing lines uh, in the working class, they disappear when you struggle side by side. And you see the opposite thing happening in the capitalist class. When class struggle uh, tightens up, the ruling class will always choose their class side. The, the female capitalist will be on the side of the capitalist, not the majority of women. So that's why the fight against oppression is a fight completely linked to the fight against this economic system because it is rooted in this economic system. And the working class consists of all these, of women, of black people, of uh, homosexuals, of trans uh, persons and so on. It, it consists of all of us. It's a lie that it's only white male work, who are workers. So the, the working class fight is a fight to, to liberate all these people from oppression. And they're the only group in society who can because it's the only group who can, who can change the economic structures of society. But in this fight, the, the necessary thing is to focus on what, what unites us, what unites the working class. And that's where identity politics goes wrong. It focuses on what sets us apart. It focuses on the individual. It doesn't mean that we don't fight for, for the rights of women or the rights of, of uh, or against oppression of, of any kind of sexuality in this society. But as Sam also explained, we use this fight to, to unite the working class, to show the limitations of capitalism, and, and to explain the need to fight for socialist revolution. Ten minutes gone. Because that's the only way that we can, that we can remove oppression uh, by, by its roots. And that is why we need the Marxist theory, because that's the only theoretical base that can be used to, to take this fight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. Uh, next speaker is Serena Capodicasa from the Italian section of the IMT. We'll be Hi, followed comrades. by Joel Bergman. Sorry. Hi, comrades. When we Marxists say that the struggle against women oppression and the struggle against any other kind of oppression must be connected to the, to the class struggle and to the struggle against capitalism, it is not an abstract concept invented by us, the Marxists. It derives from the material roots of any form of oppression, and it has a living demonstration in the historic experience if we consider the periods when all important achievements in the field of civil rights have been conquered. In my contribution, I will refer, as a demonstration of this, to the events in Italy in the 70s, a decade during which some crucial reforms in the field of women's rights were conquered. For instance, the right to divorce, the right to abortion, the equality between husband and wife inside the marriage. 
And by the way, I would like to remark that all these reforms were passed in Italy, an allegedly advanced country in the 70s. And they were not at all gifted by the government of the time, but conquered through hard struggles. While in revolutionary Russia, these measures were among the first to be put forward by the, by the Bolsheviks after the 1917 revolution. These reforms are often referred to as the results of the feminist movement of the time. But this is a very superficial explanation of what really happened. In fact, we cannot ascribe such achievements to sectoral struggles exclusively in the field of civil rights, but we must adopt a wider outlook which considers the whole character of that epoch. An epoch of intense class struggle that almost led to the taking of power by the working class in the revolutionary opportunity in the so-called hot autumn in 1969. A revolutionary opportunity which was lost for the harmful role played by the uh, reformist bureaucracy of the trade unions and the, the bureaucracy of the Stalinist Communist Party. Five minutes, Serena. And the revolutionary character of this epoch was evident not only in Italy, but on a global scale. In all other advanced capitalist countries, uh, think about the May 68 in France and also in the former colonial countries. So although this revolutionary opportunity was lost, it opened up a whole period of struggles in front of which the ruling class was compelled to consider a number of reforms, not only in the, in the industrial field, but also in the field of civil rights. A classical example of reforms that are the byproducts of a revolution, as Eva uh, already explained in her lead-off. It, it is true that at the time, there was the development of a number of feminist groups, emerging especially from the university milieu. Some of them put all the emphasis on the question of culture as the main cause of oppression, focusing their political activity on the self-consciousness and not taking part in the struggle for civil rights. Others were very active in these struggles and even considered themselves feminist Marxists, which is a contradiction in terms. In fact, their methods, such as separatism, and their slogans, such as the housework wage, went in the direction to divide the women workers from the rest of the working class, showing a total lack of understanding of what Marx thought about the progressive role of participation on women in the productive process. So, although some feminist groups made a very active propaganda in the struggles uh, for civil rights, the mass character of these movements went far beyond the roots they had been able to build among the women and especially among the working class women. In fact, the mobilization on civil rights were really massive at, the, uh, at that time. Ten minutes gone. More than 19 million, million people voted in defense of the right of to divorce in the referendum in 1974, with an overwhelming majority of nearly 60%. But the struggle was not only in the polls. Huge demonstrations on the question of women's rights took place in that period, with tens of thousands of women participating. The biggest one being one in Rome in 1976, with 50,000 people fighting for the right to abortion. And not very long afterwards, the abortion was legalized in Italy. Now, something similar happened a few years ago during the Niuna Menos movement and the women's strikes against violence on women. 
when we have seen huge layers of radicalized young women and female workers that were determined to fight, but most of them were not influenced by a feminist petty bourgeois prejudices uh, such as separatism or strange linguistic habits. So we must recognize that such movements then as well as today express something much deeper than the level of discussions that characterizes the feminist circles. They are the expression of the character of an entire epoch. By the way, in the hot autumn in Italy, the female workers were among the first layers of workers taking initiative, even before the great strikes and factory occupation of 1969. Two minutes left. Confirming what has been seen many times in history, for example, in the first stage of the Russian Revolution, revolution which began on the International Women's Day 1917, the February Revolution. So what about today? Just think about the key job sectors that were on the front, that are on the front line during this pandemic. Health workers, supermarket workers, in all these branches, women play a key role. And think about those women compelled to work at home with the so-called smart working, taking care of the children at the same time because schools were closed. This situation is having a deep impact on their consciousness. And once again, we see young women and women workers among the most radicalized layers of the class. Anyway, there is one fundamental difference with the experience I referred to in the 70s. Then the capitalist system had uh, experienced a very long boom and at its shoulders and had some margin, some, um, some uh, accumulated resources to grant, to concede some achievements and concessions. Today, today, the system has no margin, no, uh, no room to concede reforms. So the importance of reformism and the need for a revolutionary alternative will be clear to bigger and bigger layers of the youth and the working class, especially the women. So we must be prepared to intervene in this mood to be the revolutionary party that is needed to put an end to the final cause of exploitation and oppression, capitalism. Thank you very much, Serena. I can... Okay, next speakers will be Joel Bergman from the Canadian section of the IMT. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Ilva, for the great presentation. Um, <clears throat> I want to say that I don't, I don't think it's surprising that there's been an explosion of struggles against different forms of oppression uh, around the world. There's the movement against racism in the U.S., the Me Too movement, uh, the women's strike in Spain. Uh, many of these struggles have taken place in the most advanced capitalist countries. Um, actually, and I think this fact shows that the oppression cannot be abolished under capitalism. In the best of all capitalist worlds, they haven't, everyone knows that the oppression is still alive and well. Now, these, these struggles are, are very progressive and, and must be supported. However, we must uh, be enthusiastically involved in the struggle, but we also need to be bringing in a clear Marxist program of how to fight against oppression. And, and in order to do this, we need to understand how the various uh, theories of identity politics uh, actually directly undermine these struggles. Uh, if we had to sum up a central pillar of identity politics, as Yulva explained... Uh, this would basically be that someone from an oppressed group 
uh, knows how to best fight oppression they experience. Um, but just experiencing oppression does not mean you have all of the knowledge of what is the best way to fight against that oppression. That takes study. Um, and I can give you, I just want to give a few examples, recent examples of how this general idea, uh, which focuses on the identity rather than the uh, ideas. Um, I want to give you a few examples of how this has extremely reactionary results. Uh, for example, in Montreal, where I am based, uh, when the recent movement uh, against racism and police brutality exploded in the in the U.S., uh, it had its uh, reverberations on the ground here, and there were demonstrations called. Uh, and these were organized by black organizations. How, however, just because they all were black doesn't mean they had all the same ideas. It's kind of like a national liberation movement in some senses with different classes of black people involved. Uh, some of them more left-wing, some of them revolutionaries, and some of them liberal. Five minutes again. So one of the organizers invited the Montreal police, which are quite well known for their racism, uh, brutalizing people of color, killing them. Uh, and uh, eventually they were forced to rescind this invitation under outrage and pressure. Um, but they also, but at the demo, they also had uh, the, the leader of the Liberal Party of Quebec speak, who is a black woman. Uh, to give you an idea, this, this, this person uh, used to be the, the president of the current government party in Quebec, uh, the CAQ, which is a right, far-right xenophobic party, uh, and more recently has joined the Liberals and now leads them who, to be honest, aren't much better. They've been in power for most of the last 20 years. Um, but f following identity politics to the logical conclusion leads you to things like this. The only real reason why she was invited to speak is because she was black and a political leader. So I think uh, identity politics is, is reactionary because it's an attempt to turn off your brain and just look at someone's identity and judge that they're therefore good or whatever they're going to say is inevitably good. Another example, which I think is even worse, far worse, uh, it's related to the events in Portland. Now, the movement in Portland has become a widespread revolt against the, against the state and against the armed forces of the state repression. Now, why, wide layers of the population have come out and opposed Trump's clampdown. You have lines of what they call momtifa, <laughs> momtifa, which is like, Moms uh, locking arms, protecting the demonstration. Uh, and Dad Tifa, which is uh, basically dads with leaf blowers blowing the tear gas back at the police, which is obviously wonderful and shows all the creativity of the working class. Ten minutes gone. Uh, and, and it's quite an advanced movement. Many of these people are armed. <laughs> and, and as I said, it involved all layers of the population. Many of these people are white which is the most progressive thing. It's not just about black people anymore. But, but there have been many, uh, I guess, identity politics activists online complaining about this, saying that it was centering white bodies or white people. So they're basically trying to keep the movement, make it not spread, and actually make the movement not win, make it weak, which is the logical conclusion of identity politics, as to focus on the form not the content.
so this actually leads directly to liberals uh, co-opting these movements. Um, Yilva gave many examples of this in Sweden. Um, there's an, uh, one final example uh, of he- here in Quebec. The, the right-wing government has passed a law that's a, basically a, a hijab ban um, or a niqab ban, similar to laws that have been passed in Europe, which is a total reactionary Islamophobic law. And there was a big debate inside the left party about this because the leadership didn't fully oppose it for, for reasons of identity, because the history of the Quebecois is a secular people and stuff. Two minutes left. Um, but then there was a sector of the party membership that uh, wanted to fight against the leadership by mandating people of color in leadership positions. But, but the, again, this was focusing on the form and not the content. There are leaders, uh, people of color leaders of the party, and they didn't oppose this law either. And the only two public figures of the party that opposed the law were white. So again, I agree with Yulva. We criticize them that they don't actually go, they don't do enough to fight against the oppression. It actually doesn't have anything to do with fighting oppression, what they're doing. And it allows liberals to to, uh, give tokenistic concessions to placate the movement. But the existence of this movement in the U.S. proves that people are sick of it, are sick of this stuff, that they're no longer happy with these sorts of tokenism, tokenistic concessions. So I believe, so I believe that we have a historic moment to actually connect to these movements with our politics, with a Marxist perspective that that only a united class struggle uh, uh, can end all forms of oppression. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joel. Joel was the last uh, intervention in the debate. And so now we have uh, Ilva, who can sum up this uh, very good discussion. Okay. Well, I think we've had an excellent discussion. All the interventions were really, really good. Now, a lot of points were brought up, and I won't be able to touch on all of them. But I have some points I want to add. So Joel um, made some very good, um, uh, he had some very good concrete examples of how reactionary uh, identity politics is, how it divides the movement. And I think he phrased it really well, that uh, it really, um, the methods and ideas of identity politics is, is really aimed at not making the struggle win, not making it spread. Now, uh, another example of this, um, it's an example that we speak of often, is uh, precisely the women's strike in Spain in 2018, where the feminists who were leading uh, that strike, they demanded that only women were supposed to go on strike and that the men should take the women's place at the work, therefore acting as strike breakers. It really shows it really shows, and as, as all the examples that Joel said, the absurdity of these ideas. Now, um, Marie spoke about um, the importance of a class analysis. And, and she mentioned um, how uh, intersectionality, um, identity politics in general, but it's, it's specifically uh, very, very common in intersectionality, to just view class as simply another uh, form of oppression, so the so-called classism. 
where they focus just like with all other oppression on the experience of being a worker. And what, what really, what does it mean to be a worker? Who is a worker and who is not a worker? What is the culture of, of workers? As Marxists, we have a completely different approach uh, to, to class. We're not interested in uh, deciding at an individual level who is a worker and who is not a worker. Hmm, can that individual be said to be a worker or a petty bourgeois person because they studied at the university but they have this job? That's the kind of approach they have. But rather, we look at the working class as a whole, its role in production and how the working class will move in, in the class struggle, how different sectors of the working class will move. And similarly, we're not interested in deciding who is a real woman, who can be part of the women's struggle, which is the approach of identity politics. And we've seen recently a struggle between um, queer feminists and trans activists and radical feminists and some liberal feminists on the other hand, where the radical feminists and liberal feminists are precisely obsessed with defining who is a real woman and see trans women as, as a threat to their movement. We're not interested in defining at an individual level who can really be said to suffer from uh, racism. But rather we look to uh, the oppression as a whole and how to fight against it. But in the identity political movement, you see this competition uh, of who is the most oppressed or the way you define the identity of this movement, I don't feel included, which just leads to division and infighting. Now, um, Sam... Um, also talked about the role in the working class in the struggle against oppression. And he talked about how uh, you've seen this time and time again, how feminists and other identity political movements, how the petit bourgeois leadership are content after they've won some partial gain and then become defenders of, of the establishment of the status quo of capitalism. And he used the, the suffragettes as an example. Another example is uh, this uh, feminist group uh, in Sweden called Group 8 that was the main feminist, radical feminist group in the 70s. Now, in the beginning, they didn't call themselves feminists, but Marxists. And they focused on uh, different issues concerning working class women, but mainly uh, the struggle for the right to abortion. But once that was gained in 1974... Then they started receding from, from the struggle and became feminists, radical feminists, and started focusing on elevating uh, female art, female culture, organizing small groups of women just talking about their individual experiences of, of oppression. And many of these uh, became had a great career within academia in the 80s taking a step back from, from the struggle and became, becoming a part of, of the establishment. Um, now, another point I would like to make that I didn't have time to go into in my uh, lead-off, um, I, I touched on the fact that many feminists have claimed that Marxists don't care about oppression. 
and that this is uh, partly due to Stalinism and how it viewed uh, oppression. That's not the whole explanation. It's also clear that many academics have not cared to truly understand what the early Marxists wrote on the issue of oppression. Some of them have clearly read Marx. Some have even read Engels' book, The Origins of the Family, Private Property in the States. They might not uh, all be familiar with the wealth of material written by early Marxists, especially in the communist third international on oppression, nor the Marxist true um, record of struggling against oppression. But quite a few have, of them have read some things and have still drawn the conclusion that Marxists do not care about oppression. What is clear is that their method, and this is true for all those academics who have used Marxism in order to then revise it or to discard it, is that they pick and choose quotes and ideas that suit their own interests. And that they often approach Marxism with already made up minds of what uh, we will say. When reading Marx or Engels, they'll be looking for words that today may be considered politically incorrect. And then to say, look, Marx or Engels was racist or sexist because they used this term. Uh, one example I remember vividly was one feminist who told me that she had read a text by Lenin about women's oppression. But what she told me that Lenin said was actually the complete opposite of was, uh, what Lenin was arguing. Other times, um, they cannot really discard uh, what early Marxists have written on the question. But then they simply call those Marxists feminists. Uh, so Rosa Luxemburg, Clara Setkin, August Biebel, Alexandra Kollontai. They've all been called feminists, despite the fact that they were Marxists who struggled against the bourgeois feminist movement at the time. The real tradition of Marxism has been buried under a heap of lies. And it's our job to bring forth the real tradition. Now, Serena talked about how the gains made in uh, Italy in the 70s were uh, part of the a product of the class struggle and not uh, just the feminists, as it, uh, it's said in the feminist struggle. And it's the same in Sweden. And we see that throughout the history of Sweden, that uh, all the gains made by women is always ascribed to the feminist movement and as, as their achievement. But also in Sweden, they were very much a product of, of the class struggle. But also um, in Sweden, so you, you had massive gains made for the working class and, and women that were also in the interests of the capitalists. The welfare state, for example, enabled uh, the capitalists to draw in women into production. And at the time of the boom, they needed those women to expand production. But just like Serena said, Today, we're in a completely different epoch, the period of a crisis of capitalism, where they're not interested in expanding the welfare state, but attacking all the gains made by the working class in the past, which means that um, it's not just that we need to end capitalism to finally end uh, oppression, but even to make any bigger steps forward for, um, to improve the living and working conditions of, of the oppressed workers necessitates an end of capitalism. 
And as we've seen, these attacks against the gains of the working class, uh, the attacks in all countries against the working class, has provoked massive struggles. And as, and as Joel said, these movements will not be content with uh, what identity politics has to offer. And once they become too big, the identity politics uh, people, they, they simply cannot contain the movement and introduce their methods anymore. And we've seen this with Black Lives Matter in the US, for example. So we're living in a period of, of great class struggles where the socialist revolution is on the order of the day. But a socialist revolution cannot succeed unless the working class has a revolutionary Marxist leadership. So if you're watching this and you're burning with a desire to fight for a socialist society, take the step, join us in the IMT to build the forces of Marxism and fight together with us to bring these ideas into the movement and into the labor movement so that our period is, is not another story of how the leaders of the working class betrayed it, as is the story of so many revolutions in the past. But that the story told in the future was that we succeeded in destroying capitalism so that future generations can live in a united communist world where all remnants of class society has died out. Thank you. Well, I thank you, Ilva, for this excellent and very inspiring sum up. I think we had a very good uh, session um, you can find uh, the reading um, uh, suggestion on um, the uh, University Marxist, uh, sorry, Marxist University website. Among that, there is a, a, a document titled Marxism versus uh, Identity Politics, which was approved by uh, 2018 IMT World Congress. And I think Ilva was right, suggesting also the marvelous book by Engels, The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State. So tomorrow we have uh, the last day of this uh, wonderful uh, Marxist University. I remind you that at 1 p.m. British time, we'll have uh, three different sessions. The first is Marxism and Religion. The second will be Liberty Through Struggle, Marxism versus Queer Theory. And the third one, Their Morals and Ours, Marxism versus Pacifism. And later on, we will have the closing online rally, Building the Revolutionary Party. So I thank you, everybody, and see you tomorrow.